Hey guys, welcome to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Rich Fish. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the importance of instrument quality in a BMS. So I think a good starting point for this podcast is just to outline what types of instrumentation are we talking about? And that is temperature sensors, that could be room, water, uh, coil surface, etc., humidity sensors, DP sensors, differential pressure, airflow sensors, and there's probably a handful of more sensors too if you guys want to add to that. Well, you have indoor air quality sensors, specific gas sensors, refrigerant monitors, and any variety of other uh, safety sensors or switches like water level, if the condensate pan is plugged, et cetera. But really, anything that will provide a standardized signal of some kind, like 4 to 20 milliamp, 2 to 10 volts, 0 to 10 volt, et cetera, can be brought into the BMS. And depending on how vital or precise the measurement needs to be, well, that determines the quality of the instrumentation that you pick. And we're primarily talking uh, uh, today about uh, input sensing. Correct. So you could get into a plethora of additional instrumentation that's on the output or control side as well. So regarding input sensors then, and kind of going from that list that we just talked about, what applications require more more accurate or quality sensors then? Because I can imagine, well, I know some, you don't need so much accurate temperature sensing or, or sensing rather than other applications. So I don't know if we want to outline that. Going from your general office space, which, you know, typically you're looking for comfort for the occupant working in the office, you're not looking at really high grade instrumentation for those kind of applications because it's really, it's just the the feeling of the human comfort, a couple of degrees off or a little, you know, a few percentage off and humidity isn't really ever felt. But when you get into, you know, specific spaces where, there may be experimentation going on that requires steady conditions within certain parameters. Uh, you get into vivarium spaces where animals that are used in studies and, and testing live and experimentation takes place. Not only is temperature and humidity become important in maintaining a set level of accuracy to validate the, the, the whole experimental process and the findings, but also, as Mark mentioned, uh, air quality sensing, specific gas sensing, because the waste products of the animals put off ammonia and other gases that you know have to be monitored and addressed in some in some way. Those type of applications are where you're going to see the the requirement for higher accuracy. You get into medical, where you're doing pharmaceutical mixing, where they're doing surgeries, a number of different types of procedures that can take place in medical require fairly tight temperature and humidity control to not only make it comfortable for the patient, but to reduce the chances of bacterial growth or infection. Well, I I agree with all of that, Rich, and then in addition, we see the requirement for precision environments in many, many manufacturing applications, including 
clean room manufacturing for electronics, optics, lasers, even precision machining and micro machining where there are metrology uh, level spaces that require extremely precise temperature and or relative humidity control. Yeah. And I think to take it a step further, you know, temperature and RH control, we're looking at the space, but that sensor quality also has to follow through for the system to ensure that the system is running properly and giving the space what it, what it thinks it needs when it actually needs. Oh, absolutely. When you have requirements for specific uh, air change rates, and those requirements vary you know, depending on the application, what Mark was referring to in the industrial process world or industrial manufacturing, you know, they have specific requirements as to the, the air change rates. It's obvious that in research and in healthcare, there are various different codes that have requirements for specific air change rates. So airflow sensing and accurate airflow sensing becomes very important in those applications that, you know, combining that with the equipment that is delivering the media, the media typically being the conditioned air, right? the air handling units, exhaust fans, whatever it is that's moving that air, the accuracy of the devices that are applied to discharge air temperature, uh, even water temperature to verify coil function, you can get into just a ton of sensing in the the air delivery systems for these precision type environments that require these special codes and standards and validations. So, and I agree completely, what, when would you guys say, okay, maybe we should outline what NIST, what a NIST traceable sensor is and when, when well, should we use them? Can I back up a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so in in the context of instrumentation accuracy, there's really three components to accuracy, linearity, repeatability, and hysteresis. Mm -hmm. So if a device is linear, that means that the sensed response, be it ohms or milliamps, is directly proportional to the change in physical environment. If it's nonlinear, that nonlinearity, the has to be corrected by a transmitter or internal to the DDC controller. Hysteresis is basically a change in, in device output with no change in physical surroundings or physical environment, meaning that there's a wobble or a non-steady state response in some amount during steady state process measurement. And repeatability means that as the process environment goes up and then comes back down at same to the same point x from which it originated that the sensor output is the same so typically when we talk about accuracy and controls it's the combination of all three of those things i'd add one to that mark in the uh, digital or the analog to digital conversion process as well absolutely so the the accuracy of the digital signal is impacted by the A to D conversion, whether it's 8-bit, 10-bit, 12-bit. An 8-bit converter converts an analog signal 2 to the 8th power into 256 segments. So if you have a 100-degree span temperature sensor, 
that's broken up into 256 segments, that's about 0.4 degrees per step function, which basically gets you an error of almost half a degree just in the A to D conversion. Which is why we typically now see most DDC systems either 12-bit at a minimum, and a lot of them have gone to 16-bit. Yeah, that's impressive to be able to have that that many steps in your sensing. And that, but that, like you said, Rich, that would occur generally at in the DDC system. You'd bring your AI in as a you know whatever four to twenty signal, and then convert that. Then, right? Correct. Yeah, it becomes part of the accuracy. You know, Mark mentioned the. The, the three components that, yep. and I say you, you need to add to that, mm-hmm. the component of the conversion of that device into a digital signal because the DDC system is what's processing that and making the decision on how it's going to adjust an output based on that. Very true. Yep. So that's a good, that was a good step back, Mark, to outline what specifically we kind of mean when we're talking about sensor quality and accuracy. So it would be linearity, hysteresis, and repeatability. That's just the sensor. And then Rich elaborated on it and said, okay, now when we take that signal into the controller, there's the potential for another error on the A to D conversion side. Yep, that makes sense. I think now maybe it would be a good spot to then talk about what a NIST traceable sensor is, why we generally recommend them right, or require them in a lot of specifications, and what the difference is between a NIST and a non-NIST? Well, first, probably best to explain what NIST, what the acronym NIST stands for, the National Institute of Standards and Testing. Am I correct, Mark? That's Techn- correct. Okay, I thought it was technology. The National Institute of Standards and Testing sets up a process that is to be used in the calibration of a device that is a traceable process that says when we calibrate the device using this procedure, it's verified that these results that we're getting are accurate and can be documented and essentially a certificate attached to the device. So every device, you know, at the manufacturer, when they produce the device, has some typical calibration standard that they use before they, you know, say this device is ready to be put in a box and ready to be sold. Right. When you go to a NIST traceable calibration standard, it enhances that to a, the word traceable, to a traceable process that is then documented and included with the sensor that proves the accuracy of that sensor. So that when it is saying, you know, a certain temperature and the accuracy statement is, you know, plus or minus a quarter percent or whatever it is, it's been proven using that standard that it has met that. Yeah. And, and it actually, when it says it's traceable, so the national NIST basically maintains the reference devices for everything that is measured, calibrated, sensed in the United States. So one foot there's a one foot piece of material in a metrology center at nist that is the standard in the united states for basically every one foot measurement same thing with weights pressures so when it's traceable 
it means that the calibrated reference device is directly traceable to a NIST standard device. And that certificate of traceability says that it was calibrated by a device that is calibrated to the national's reference standard. So in an earlier BMS podcast, we talked about a customer that calibrated devices against each other in the field. Well, that's like saying I have a yardstick and a ruler and they both pretty much look the same. But if somebody gives me a faulty yardstick or a ruler, they may not look the same. So, and maybe that's a bad analogy, but when I talk about a standard, it means it's traceable to the reference standard at the National uh, Institute. And then going further down the NIST calibration standard or the calibration requirement, there's single point calibration, there's multi-point calibration, and depending on the span of the controller and the precision of or the span of the sensor and the, the precision required across a specific range, you can get single point, five point, seven point, nine point, depending on what measurement range you're looking at for the specific device. So I think not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I think you made a good point regarding calibrating two field devices with other sensors and not being NIST, that caused a lot of problems actually because the calibration wasn't the same for every sensor and ultimately systems were fighting each other. Well, and certainly there has to be, especially when we go through the BMS startup phase and we go to the commissioning phase, it's imperative that field devices used by BMS technicians and or commissioning folks have their instrumentation calibrated to NIST standards. And certainly it takes money, it takes time, but that is a requisite. Otherwise, uh, you, you end up in the battle in the field about whose equipment is measuring correctly. Right. We've been on jobs many, many times where a customer brings out their measurement device, be it temperature, relative humidity, airflow, et cetera, and potentially has never been calibrated. We always look for the calibration sticker on every field device that's being used. And it it takes money, but it's well worth the investment when you can pull out a calibrated instrument and say, okay, this is calibrated and here's when, and here's the, here's the NIST traceability on it and then puts the whole issue to, to rest. Certainly in, in uh, working with balancing contractors on projects and you may get a balancer come back and say, Hey, the, you know, this device isn't reading correct. The first question I ask is when was the last time your device was calibrated? Let me see the sticker or the paperwork for that. And, 90% of the time that, you know, good balancing contractor is keeping their, their, you know, their verification instruments up to date with calibration. But there's been times where someone has flipped over a short ridge and the, the calibration date on it was three years ago. Right. And in particularly in pressure, those devices are, are prone to not holding their calibration for, you know, great periods of time. They're 
they're prone to drift pretty easy. Really? So, yeah. Hmm. That can make, those are pretty sensitive devices and that can make a, cause a lot of problems down the road too for, oh, for I system can't. control. I mean, just being off a little bit. I, I can't even begin to tell you how many t times I have seen techs waste hours trying to rebalance or, or should I say uh, match up airflow <laughs> devices to a faulty balance contractor's uh, instrumentation. And it's a horrible waste of money. Yeah. And then you end up with a system that isn't truly reading what it says it's reading. So are we saying by by utilizing NIST traceable field sensing devices, you can mitigate a lot of that? Certainly. And yeah. making sure that the standard that's being used as the calibration check, you know, Mark mentioned it before, it's costly to, to you know, buy those ins, you know, high quality instruments, the handheld instruments first, and then it's costly to keep them calibrated. Mm -hmm. But, you know, buying a NIST traceable device that's getting installed, you should have a good device to start with mm -hmm. and then a means of challenging if you've got someone verifying that that's saying, oh, that's not reading right. Okay, let's pull out the, the calibration certificate for the device and let's check the calibration on your handheld device. So does the NIST process like say I have a temperature sensor, a space temperature sensor, right? And say it's, it's kind of a, we'll call it a cheaper one, crappy, whatever. And I fire up the system. It's matching my, my NIST field device calibration wise, all is good. And then a few weeks down the road, that sensor starts to degrade and it's sensing, you know, whatever, warmer or colder in the space when it, in reality it's not. And that obviously is going to throw the system all out of whack. Does NIST, is that process like used to vet, you know, the quality of that sensor for like, you know, lifespan wise, how long it will last in that regard or just how well does no. it sense? No, NIST is basically... It doesn't really do anything to test for quality of construction. Okay. I mean, you could have a sensor manufactured that is calibrated with a NIST certificate and everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a crack in the uh, sensing element or something that doesn't become apparent until it's been installed. There's many different things that can go wrong with a device that have nothing to do with its initial calibration and certification. That's correct. And this doesn't speak to the, to the suitability of application. It doesn't speak to the quality of construction, mm -hmm. it, but by and large, you get what you pay for. Um, yeah. Right. You know, you draw the distinction between commercial grade instrumentation and, and industrial grade instrumentation and the lines get blurred because both can certainly interact or be used, you know, one to substitute for another. But in the industrial world, you'll typically have a temperature sensor very closely connected to a precision transmitter providing a four to 20 milliamp signal. And you see those things installed and, you know, whether it be Foxborough, Fisher, Rosemount, they'll last for decades. Yeah. I, I mean, decades, maybe 30, 40 years, you go in a plant and uh, you'll see a precision 
thermistor or thermocouple in a thermal well attached to that transmitter. And you see it's been calibrated since 1970. And that, that is pretty common. Probably not so much in the commercial world. And I guess probably because it's not as, in some instances, not as critical or they don't feel it to be as critical in the commercial world. Nor does the commercial world economically support that kind of cost. Yeah, that's true. Correct. Yep. But that said, I mean, just a, a quick digression on the value of NIST calibration, especially from installation, startup, and commissioning costs. If you take a typical thermistor, a single point calibration from the factory with no NIST, you'll get maybe 0.3, 0.35 degree stated accuracy, and that should be good. And when you go with NIST, you typically get better than that, usually 0.2, but it's certified accuracy. So what you end up with is a 10K ohm thermistor that's certified at 0.2 degrees that it's calibrated single point sensing will start up and run immediately with no required offset or calibration inside the controller to compensate for that. So, you know, that typically is around, yeah, it's about 10 bucks to get that done per temperature sensor. Okay. People say, well, that's a lot. If we have, you know, 200 temperature sensors on a project, it is a lot. All you have to do is save 15 minutes of time in the field. Yeah. You've paid for that 10 bucks plus. Exactly. Well, exactly. And look, look at what, how much time Mark and I spent looking confused about issues in performance of systems. And, you know, the discharge air temperature was reading four degrees less than what it was in reality. And that was throwing the whole system off. And there's a, I assume, a perfect example for that. It is a perfect example. And so what do we end up with? A, a weak, I mean, low cost non-NIST temperature sensor with a four degree offset in the controller to compensate for it. Well, and does that four degree offset stay linear over the span of the, uh, of the process? We don't know that. You want to hope that's, that was why I asked the question is because that's the, the one fallacy with, uh, you know, having to try and compensate for sensor error with an offset in the controller is if it's not linear, if it, if that offset's not linear, you move into a different range of the, of the process temperature. And all of a sudden now you might be four degrees in the other direction. Exactly. Correct. Rich. And most control systems don't have a mechanism to put in nonlinear offsets, nor should they necessarily have to. Right. It, it just shouldn't even be required. And, and that's, you know, my real contention would be if you buy good quality instrumentation and get it NIST certified, you'll, you should never have to put an offset in a controller. Well, that was, that's, that's interesting because this, I I've only had one experience with offsets on any kind of sensing devices. And it was, it was different. I mean, I'm used to like in our specifications, NIST traceable sensors going in and it's just kind of smooth sailing, easy going on the sensing part of it and then it's way easier to diagnose any other types of issues if it's control or mechanical but when you start off with a bad foundation i don't want to call that the foundation but you know you you're what you're looking at on the control system you want to be able to trust so you can diagnose further issues down the road it makes things really challenging and that was the first experience i've had with non-nist traceable sensors where you had to 
go in and put an offset on almost, I think it was every temperature sensor, which was ridiculous. Well, and, and as I recall, you even asked the question, what are we, what are we doing? What does this offset do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like dumbfounded. I'm like, are you telling me that these sensors aren't reading what is reality? I mean, yeah. what's going on? You, you just want to, I don't know. That's amazing to me that that happens in the industry. I mean, maybe not so much if people, again, put in this. Well, in, so again, and not, I'm not uh, casting aspersions, but it, it is incumbent upon the designer to include that, that requirement in the specification that sensors, be they pressure, temperature, relative humidity, differential pressure, come with NIST calibration certificates. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, Rich, you're, you're on the, you bid against people every day who, if they saw that in a specification, they would have to Google it to understand what that really means. So yeah, it's crazy to me to think that. Yeah. Designers need to understand that, make that part and parcel and a component of their specification for performance, not only temperature or pressure or flow sensor accuracy, but also so they don't just submit a, a uh, cut sheet in the submittal process that says the sensor will have this accuracy, but also they require a certification, a, certi a certificate with every device shipped so that we know it's actually gone through the NIST process and is calibrated to a reference device. I, I think we covered this actually kind of in conversation, but I just want to outline it more specifically, maybe as like a percentage, because obviously sensors cost different depending on what they're doing. How much more is it to go NIST as opposed to not? I mean, you can probably buy some really cheap, crappy sensing devices also, but like in general, you know, what do you see the Typically, the uh, NIST traceability of, of a single point is somewhere in the ten to fifteen dollar. Uh, yeah, okay. Cost so like we said so. It adds up if you have two hundred sensors, but it's not. But again, like I said, it it it, it pays for itself. Yeah, yeah. Easily in the yep. in the startup and commissioning process. Absolutely, we spend a lot of time searching for what we thought were different types of problems when it was just the sensing devices telling us what wasn't reality. That's exactly right. And, and smart contractors recognize that, that, Hey, we may pay a little more upfront, but we will speed through the startup and commissioning process like nobody's business. No, there's not really anything more impressive to me that, you know, we get the call, Hey, uh, we need you to commission this job. We never saw it. We didn't design it. We don't know anything about it. But when you show up on a job and a, a contractor, you say, do you have, you know, calibrated devices and this traceable and they show you a stack of certificates, you know, the job will be a lot easier, a lot faster, a lot smoother. And you're dealing with a contractor that, you know, has their act together. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes it, I imagine going in with a little less information, a little bit more confidence inspiring, at least when you go through the process? Well, there are many, many different forms of sensors for all the physical uh, elements that typically occur in HVAC, be they uh, liquid flow, be they water, uh, I'm sorry, airflow, relative humidity, temperature, gases, etc. And again, I have to restate that the designer, 
the A&E needs to understand the proper application of instrumentation for this specific process. So, you know, leaving instrument selection up to the BMS supplier will always get you exactly what you specified, the lowest cost device. So until you put in the performance metrics required for flow accuracy, especially when in things where you're doing, uh, for instance, BTU measurement on a, on a chiller. So we have the flow and then we have the differential temperature across the chiller. Well, if I have, you know, half a percent or greater error in each of those measurements, particularly where you're doing custody transfer billing, you don't really have a basis for doing custody, custody transfer metering and consequential billing using that level of accuracy. Basically, uh, custody transfer is half a percent end-to-end, -end, which when you, we have half a percent error on three, three different sensing elements, you'll never get to half a percent end-to-end -end accuracy, or if you do, it's an accident. Now, you wouldn't mind just outlining what custody transfer billing is, would you? Uh, sure. We're, custody transfer billing is where, for instance, on a, in a campus setting, we're doing or a large scale uh, downtown central chill water or hot water or steam system. So we have measurements on the mass flow and the differential in unit energy. And based on that, the customer gets billed for accepting energy in that amount. So we delivered X number of chilled water tons or this many M pounds of steam at, uh, you know, this quality. So when you're billing a customer for the energy that you produce or that they're receiving, it's really important to have high grade instrumentation. And we see it, you know, often where hey, there's a standard temperature sensor stuck in a thermal well and it has a pretty good layer of dust on it. And, you know, there's a dispute and we get called in to say, Hey, are we really getting this much energy? It doesn't seem like it doesn't feel like it. Right. Um, it, just a word to the wise, basically pick your instrumentation for the suitable, suitable for the application. Particularly when you get into those calculations like that, where you're, you know, working with multiple different parameters that are feeding into a calculation that produces the end result that you're really interested in between it would marks example, you've got a flow meter and you've got a differential temperature to get the best differential temperature. You really don't want to use two separate sensors. You want to use two elements and one sensing device that's comparing those elements and providing a single output that those elements are matched, they're calibrated. So you're getting a differential temperature output instead of measuring a temperature, then mathematically figuring the difference and then running it through the calculation with the, the, uh, the flow rate and the equation that gives you the energy, you know, the BTUs. So you just don't want kind of like stack up error if you'd call it that then pretty much. That reduces that, yeah. That's exactly what it is, and it goes to Rich's point about A to D conversion. So 
especially when you have multiple temperature sensors and you're doing an A to D conversion, much easier to take a transmitter in the field that will accept two, as Rich said, matched elements, matched meaning calibrated together, basically shipped from the manufacturer with specific locations. So they would expect very tight temperature sensing or flow sensing at two locations within a specific range. And those are wired to a differential temperature transmitter, which does the comparison and gives you the single differential temperature output that you, you need for the calculation. Yeah, totally agreed. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that covers, it, it help. it just mitigates issues. So. Correct. One of the, the, one of the, at least in a lot of the institutional type of applications for airflow control, getting into research and stuff like that, it's one of the reasons why we typically try really hard to steer engineers away from using standard VAV boxes for precision airflow control. You typically are, th those things are getting just from the very start with the type of flow element that they use to the differential pressure device that's being used to determine that flow to the calculation. And then add on top of that, that when it's uh, checked for calibration by a balancer, they check it at one point, typically at the design max. And that's all the balancer really is concerned about is the design max. So whatever error there is in that process of converting that to an airflow, once the balancer takes that reading and makes the DDC guy, you know, adjust his output or whatever to match that, that whole nonlinear function, everything below that reading isn't correct. Rich, you're exactly right. Um, happens all the time that as you start to, turn down sensing elements from their, you know, sweet spot per se, especially as you go with lower grade instruments, the performance just falls off in general, like nobody's hmm. business. That's crazy to think. I know mean, you just want you to me expect a sensor to, <laughs> to do its job no matter what, not have that be at a sweet spot and, potentially have to put an offset on it and hope that offset follows through for the range of temperature sensing and all of that. I mean, that's just crazy to think that there's so much deviation from what is reality possibly. Yeah, we uh, often get, you know, asked to look at why uh, surgical suites, for instance, aren't matching their desired air change rates or why pressurization isn't the way it should be, even though, the air flows that they're reading say that it should be. Let's say you know, you're trying to maintain a positive environment in a surgical suite and your typical application or typical design is a constant volume VAV box and a manually balanced return duct. And they're showing the desired flow that they think they need on the VAV box, but they're not getting the pressurization of the space. And you go and you look at the instrumentation that's applied to that VAV box, a typical pedo cross yeah. uh, that is uh, a cheap instrument 
for measuring the uh, velocity pressure in the duct to begin with. Then you add on top of that a very low cost type of differential pressure sensor, which the things that Mark talked about, the accuracy with the repeatability and the hysteresis and the drift, all of that just, I mean, the, the compounding of errors yep. it, it is so amazing that it, I don't understand how anyone designs precision airflow around that technology. We are always trying to recommend to engineers that you use a, 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 a precision airflow device to do precision airflow control. You don't use a commercial grade device right. that is designed to have plus or minus 10% or, or more error when you're trying to do precision airflow. Well, and, and that again goes back to the requirement for the uh, designers to understand that the stated accuracy that holds at design airflow, but especially as you turn down a VAV box, that airflow measuring measurement is extraordinarily inaccurate. Right. And as you said, Rich, typically an air balancer will measure at max flow, okay, and maybe at min flow and set the mins and the maxes, but anything in between, hey, that's a wet thumb. It's a pretty close, that's good enough. And in some environments, good enough is just not good enough. Well, I assume they're they're expecting the control loop to be able to do what it needs to do based on space temperature and not airflow in the most part. So I get why they say that or do that, but yeah. And when in the wrong, doing that in the wrong application was just going to cause tremendous or can cause tremendous deviation from what's reality. Absolutely. And your critical spaces, whatever they may be, are not the places to go cheap. Yeah, right. I agree completely. It's a good takeaway from this episode. <laughs> well, and I think as, as a uh, hats off to instrumentation manufacturers, you know, going back, you know, 20, 30 years, it, quality instrumentation has come so far in terms of being economical that there's really not an excuse for not using good instrumentation because to skimp on instrumentation you know, I like to call that milking mice. I'm going to buy cheap instrumentation to save a few dollars, but you will pay for that for the lifetime of the system because without quality devices forever, you'll deal with instrument error. You'll deal with the instrument instability and chasing problems that may or may not be related to the control system internals, programming or otherwise Yep, are related to actual field devices. I like that, Mark. I've never heard milking mice before. I'm going to use it. Oh, really? I'm going to plagiarize that one. It's a good one. It is. Yeah. But really, that's true. I mean, if you look at the the life cycle of a system, a facility, a place, those cheaper sensing devices can cost a lot over one year, five years, 10 years. I mean, I can imagine it can really add up until obviously at some point someone's going to identify that being a problem and maybe take the right steps to change that. But even then you you could have done it in the first place. You, it's always, how many, it's always yeah. more economical to do it yep. right the first time. I agree. Right. And the, the amount of money that will be spent over the days, weeks, months, years mm -hmm. chasing that problem 
you know oh yeah in the first 15 minutes you you basically wasted the money that you could have spent on NIST calibration and certification yeah at the end of the day you you could have probably bought NIST calibrated sensors 10 times over in some places before right. you decide oh this was a mistake so well i think that's a good takeaway from this episode and i know we covered a lot guys um Something for the listeners. I know I haven't been adding this into the podcast much, but for more information on our company's VS Energy, look at our website, www.vsenergy.us or Trinity Automated Solutions. Check out their website, www.trinityas.com. Any questions you know, to see what we do as a business or businesses, there's a lot more great information on our web pages as well. So feel free to check those out. And Stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll be bringing on some guests to talk about BMS security. And I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Have a great day.